or a form or a type for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that they could not make him that did the service, the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. You could go through these physical things, but they didn't really truly clear the mind and the conscience, which stood only in foods and drinks and different workings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. So they were given the law, they rejected it, so God gave them all kinds of carnal washings and ordinances until the time of Reformation, a reforming. And that reforming came in the time of Christ. Now what about standing only in meats and drinks? If you look that up, the commentaries will all say that those are the clean and unclean laws that are now done away with. Well, what about drinks then? Are there unclean drinks mentioned in Leviticus 11? I never noticed that. There's some unclean ones around today called Coke and Pepsi and Mountain Dew and so on. Unclean because they're unpalatable. They're not food. <clears throat> this is obviously, or should be obvious, I guess, talking about the meal offerings, the drink offerings uh, that had to be given just as there had to be animal sacrifices, but it doesn't have anything to do with clean and unclean. Those were from the very beginning, weren't they? Didn't God make unclean right in the creation? And didn't he save seven clean pairs at the time of the ark? See, those laws were, in effect, way before this. He's talking about things that were added because people didn't keep the law. So that had to do with meal offerings, drink offerings, uh, different washings, carnal ordinances, or ceremonies imposed on them until the time of Reformation. And I'm sure glad. Isn't it nice to be able for every one of us to get on our knees and pray to God the Father through the Savior? And be able to go there any time of day or night, any day of the week, month, or year, any time. Now, we can go pray to God, can't we? Then they had all those sacrifices they had to do. Wouldn't that be difficult? Let's say you lied. Or stole something. Well, i got to go out to the corral get myself an animal, got to sacrifice it or take it to the priest to have him sacrifice it. And the priests were probably saying, oh, come on, people quit sinning. Man, I, I'm up to here in blood and I'm getting tired. Have to offer sacrifices all the time. They became professional butchers. <laughs> That's about all they did was cut up meat. We don't have to do that now. All we have to say is, Father, forgive me through your Son who died for me. That's all it takes. Pretty simple. You would think we'd be taking advantage of that pretty regularly, wouldn't you? If we're serious about religion. We'll be asking for help a lot and for forgiveness a lot. <clears throat> Verse 11, But Christ being come a high priest, there's the Reformation for you, of good things to come, 
by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. The way to salvation was made possible. Eternal redemption. Redeemed forever. Now, does that mean that once we accept his blood, we're automatically saved? No. It has been offered. We have accepted eternal redemption. But if we turn from his way, we can become castaways. Or if we come to the wedding supper without proper clothes, we can be turned away. I guess it's convenient to think that you're once you're saved, you're always saved and you can't fall away. But there, there are too many examples in the Bible showing that that can happen. And that if you, once you lose your faith in God, that it's hard to renew you back so that you can be indeed made a part of the kingdom of God. We won't get into that. There's a lot on that. <clears throat> but he offered us good things to come. Carrot, in other words. Here's something that I offer you that will give you hope and will give you motivation. You can live forever. You'll never grow old. Never happen. And you can live in peace and happiness and prosperity forevermore. What more could you ask? Put the blood of bulls and goats, verse 13, and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot or sin to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, without promise, without his blood, works were dead. They didn't mean anything eternally. You could do the works of the flesh, but what good did it do you? Now you have eternal salvation offered. And we serve the living God. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, <clears throat> that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Well, does that mean the law is done away with because <clears throat> he redeemed the transgressions? No, it simply means that now when we break the law, we can be forgiven. And if we continue to obey the law, we will continue to be forgiven, and he will grant us the free gift of eternal life that we can't earn, but which he is willing to give if we will serve him and live his way. You can't earn salvation, but you can do those things which will cause God to be happy to give it to you. So we have the promise of eternal inheritance in this new covenant. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Many of you have a father, a mother, or a grandfather, or grandmother. You know you're in their will. When they die, you'll receive all kinds of things because it says right there in that will, they're yours when they die. So you get on your knees and pray every night that they die. No, I guess, no, that's not the way you go about it. Some people have a murder <clears throat> so they can receive the will. 
Well, they say, man, is old so-and-so ever going to die? I'll be too old to enjoy it when they finally do die. My grandfather kind of pulled that on the grandchildren, or on, on his children, actually, because of one of my aunts. He had in his will that his children would receive an inheritance of everything he had when he died. And just not too long before he died, an aunt who was not one of the children, was married to one, decided, well, those children shouldn't have it. So she got him to change it so that the grandchildren wouldn't receive it until all those original eight children were dead. Some of those children, those eight, fought that and never got it changed. So to this day, out of those eight children, there are two alive. My mother and the oldest one of the children, who's about 90 now. And my mother's 82. And some of the grandchildren are 65, almost 70. Now, let's see, probably, yeah, some of the grandchildren probably are 70. And here's Aunt Louise that won't die. But in the meantime, see, most of the money's gone to the lawyers and so on. Well, this one died. Christ died. Thirty-three and a half years of age, about. Where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. In other words, you don't get anything till he dies whether it's in a physical family or in spiritual things, has to die. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator lives. Wouldn't it have been nice in a way if Christ could have said, all right, I'm going to offer you all these things, and I don't have to die. I'm just going to give you eternal life. I'm going to give you this and give you that. All these blessings that have been promised to us, I just won't die, but I'll just give them to you. Well, that would be kind of Protestant work pretty good, except for one thing. You have to deal with God's law. When law is broken, it was decreed long ago that someone had to die. The sinner had to die. Oh, that means that any sin you and I have ever committed, we must die for. If you lie, cheat, steal, break the Sabbath, have any kind of thing you put ahead of God, you must die for it. That's the law. Now, God gave his life so that we wouldn't have to die. Because I'll tell you what, we're all dead men otherwise. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have. Therefore, we would have to die for those sins unless someone greater than us were willing to offer his life and his life was worth more than all of ours put together. So God had to give up his life that I might live. You can't take that lightly. I'd have been dead long ago 
For a test, let's see, <clears throat> verse 18. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. Even the old covenant had to have blood. But it was just a physical covenant. And it couldn't grant eternal life. Because the blood of bulls and goats cannot absolve sin. A bull or a goat is of less value than you and me. Now, I know it's hard to get out of the word to believe that, but among others. But our lives are worth a lot more than bulls and goats. So they could not give us life. For when Moses had spoken, every precept for all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water, and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God has enjoined to you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. Aren't you glad we don't have to do that now? Every Sabbath, come out here and kill a bunch of animals and start sprinkling blood everywhere. Watch out. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. Almost all things. See, you could be allowed back in the camp if you'd sinned and you had a sacrifice. Or almost everything. Without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. And everything on the earth was just a pattern of the heavenly. And it had to be sprinkled with physical blood since it was only a physical pattern of things above. The heavenly things themselves had to be purified with better sacrifices than these. Bulls and goats wouldn't cut it if it were truly heavenly. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures or types of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. The whole purpose of the whole thing was for us, not for anybody else, not for exercise. It was done strictly for us. I can't go to heaven, can you? I barely jump off the earth that far. Maybe I can get up in an airplane or, you know, if we really, really push it, maybe we can get in a satellite orbiting the earth or... Maybe even possibly get to the moon, which is still in the Earth's orbit. That's about the extent of as far as we're going to get until this age is over. Mankind is limited by oxygen, by gravity, by a lot of things. I can't just go to heaven. Christ could. He just went. Went directly to the Father's throne in the north, probably many, many, many light years away. He could do that. We're not very great by comparison, are we? See, this, this is a lesson that goes all the way back. That's all God wanted Job to understand. Is Job, you may be doing this and this and this, and you may be a good man, and I can't find fault with you, but somehow you think you're just almost as good as I am. So when they've done all their arguing, when even him sitting on his boils all that time, God finally says, where were you when I made this and this and that? Where were you when I did this and this? Oh, I'm beginning to see now. I thought I was pretty good because I was keeping the laws and because Jesus loves me. 
But there's a vast difference between you and me. That's what he had to see. That was the epiphany for Job, to recognize the vast difference between him and God. Job apparently may have done some pretty impressive things on this earth. It is thought by a lot, and was by Dr. Hay, that he even made the Great Pyramids. And he may well have. I don't buy evolution. I believe those people back then were a whole lot smarter than we are. We've eaten pig and shrimp for a lot of years since then. And a lot of junk recently. And yet we're still able to send somebody to the moon. So, I guess... Those people back then were far smarter than we are, sharper minds. They had more knowledge, and they didn't die at 60, 70, 80 years of age either. So they did some incredible things. So he's sent there to appear in the presence of God for us. He can do something there we can't do. Go to the Father in heaven. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest of enters into the holy place every year with blood of others, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. How many times would he have had to die just for me, just for you? Now, he would have had to die daily for me. I doubt there is a day in my life that I have gone through without sinning. I I certainly cannot remember one. And I don't think I made one by accident. I doubt there's a day gone by that there's not been some vanity, ego, just, lust, vanity, jealousy, envy, greed, some thought, some emotion that was ungodly. So he would have had to die daily for me. Now what does he ask us to do? Paul said, I die daily. We have to crucify the self every day, not be selfish, vain, egotistical, greedy, or whatever. The works of the flesh. We have to get past those. He is willing to die for us, give up godliness, or being God. Not godliness, he didn't give that up, but being God, he gave up and died once for us. But he would have had to have suffered from Adam on every day because everybody has sinned every day since. Once in the end of the world has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So that sacrifice, the value of it is so much bigger than everybody that's lived from Adam till now or ever will on this earth that that one life was worth all our sin. We have to accept it, though. I've come back to this point several times. We have to believe we're forgiven in order to move forward in faith and in confidence. You can't carry your sin around behind you like a trailer. You have to unhitch it and really believe it's forgiven. And then quit sinning. It's a wrong attitude and ungodly to say, well, if he's going to forgive me anyway, I can just go ahead and do what I want. 
and I'll be forgiven. Now that's taking it lightly, and that's shoving it in his face, which is what the Protestants basically do. I know I'll be forgiven, I know I'm saved, therefore it really doesn't matter, I can go ahead and cheat, lie, steal, break the Sabbath, whatever I want to do, and I know I'll be forgiven since I'm saved. Because his grace extends to all my sins. Well, God will forgive all our sins, won't he? But that's simply a wrong attitude. It's a wrong approach to life. There's the problem. It's not that Christ's sacrifice isn't big enough for all the sins of all mankind forever. It's that if we take it lightly, we're the ones jabbing him and sticking him with a spear. We're the ones driving nails in his hands and feet if we continue to sin. And we do enough of it inadvertently without taking it lightly and tossing it off and saying, oh, well, I'll be forgiven. I can repent tomorrow, so I'll do what I want to do today. Wrong attitude, wrong spirit. So you have to worship in spirit and in truth and not take lightly all these words that you're supposed to govern yourself in. So, once here in the end of the world, it's been a couple thousand years, but still it's the latter half of man's experience on the earth. He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and as it is appointed to men once to die, but after this, the judgment. After we've finished our life, he's going to make a judgment on us. Well, if you're already saved, why do you need a judgment? See? God is going to consider your whole life, however long you lived, and what truth you had, were you offered the new covenant or not. If not, then the judgment you'll have will be in the great white throne judgment, and you'll live a period of time then, either a hundred or a thousand years, and I'm beginning to think it's more like a thousand because Isaiah 65 has been taken out of context. To be judged. But judgment is now on the house of spiritual Israel, you and me. So God is considering your life and mine, and when we come to the end of it, we'll either be changed or die by then, and be changed when he returns, resurrected. So our judgment's complete, either at, the return he, at his return or if we die before then, it's completed. Judgment will have been rendered, and you'll either come up in the resurrection or you won't. This is a day of salvation for us. So every day, he analyzes you and me. He ponders our heart, he says. Is this person someone who has really got his heart in his mind and doing and living my way, or do they still want to go the way of the world, the way of Satan? The way of man, the way of lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, and envy, and selfishness? Is that the way they want to think? Are they rearranging their minds to think love, joy, happiness, peace, patience, the fruit of the Spirit? we got a war going on. It says we have a war in our members, Paul said, where he talks about the body of Christ and our, our human self is the temple of God. 
Uh, the temple of God also includes all of us, but it has several different manifestations, and our body is one of those manifestations. But there's war going on in our members, isn't there? Every day, doesn't your hand or your foot or your mouth or your eye or your ear want to do something that is ungodly? The mind? God does. Something selfish? Vain? Egocentric? Well, he's judging every day. And he's expecting us to be rearranging our minds and our hearts to be within his law. That that law live within us. And that we, every thought, every action, be filtered through that law. Hopefully before, but as I said earlier, sometimes after. We begin to reflect and say, oh man, I blew it again. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And of them that look for him, that look intently, that are serious about it, that are doing what is necessary to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. Them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin to salvation. We have to look to him. So basically what he's telling these people is, Moses, Abraham could not offer you salvation. They could offer you physical blessing if you would keep the law. But now he says, if you'll write, or let me write, my law in your heart and mind, and you'll follow my ways and think my thoughts and do the things that I want of you and live the right kind of life, I'll give you salvation, eternal life, with every benefit that it could ever be offered that we would desire. So, this man, who has become God again, has much, much to offer. And we need to understand just how important he is. And look to him daily, because he is the one who intercedes for us every day before the Father. He says, yeah, I know, he thought that, he did that, but my blood will cover it, forgive it. And the Father says, all right, son, you went down there, you lived that life, you had to die, it was an excruciating death, and because of that, I do forgive him. What an incredible thing that is to realize. Now, let's believe it. It's doing good to know it, unless we believe it. See, they entered not in because of unbelief. And Christ said, will I find faith on the earth? Will I find belief? Will I find trust? That they really believe that this sacrifice is as big as it is. Well, that's a good place to stop for today.